Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 12, still, some might say, Um, but we will finish today. may take me an hour, but we will finish today. And we are reading verses 14 through 21. And again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Three weeks ago, we began to delve into the practical outworking of this new life that we have in Christ. And we discovered a couple of foundational principles to walking successfully in the Spirit. You will remember back in chapter 8 that Paul set in contrast walking in the flesh, which was associated with our life before Christ, and walking in the Spirit, which is associated with our new life in Christ. And as Paul begins chapter 12, he urges us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which he declares is our spiritual worship. And then he urges that we not be conformed to this world, but that we should be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Now to do so is fundamental to following after Christ and walking in the Spirit. Well, after considering then the spiritual gifts which God equips the individual members of the body of Christ with, we spent last week looking at verses 9 through 13, which describe some of the key ingredients for our life together as a congregation of Christ's church. Paul highlighted things such as genuine love, showing honor to one another, diligently pursuing the life of faith, being patient in tribulation, contributing to the needs of the saints, and so on. These attributes were focused primarily upon our interactions within the fellowship or with those who are our brothers and sisters in the faith. But beginning here in verse 14, the emphasis now begins to shift to a degree. Although 
all of this has to do with the characteristics of the Christian or the disciple of Christ, the focus now falls upon our interactions with those outside the body of Christ. How is it that we are to behave and conduct ourselves with those who are currently a part of the world? How are we to act towards them and how are we to react to them? Well, Paul begins this portion of his letter by saying, Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Now, the thoughts that we find here are not original with Paul in the sense that these are new revelations from God to man. This notion of how the children of God are to interact with those outside the family of God are found throughout the Scriptures. Paul would have been familiar with the law that came through Moses where it says, for example, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its, its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Now here's a command to engage one's enemies with kindness and decency rather than looking for opportunities to take advantage of them. So as far back as the book of Exodus, we find evidence of God instructing his people to behave in ways that are honorable and good, all designed to restore broken relationships and heal divisions between people. But by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, those clear teachings of God through Moses had gone through some modifications by the rabbis and scribes meaning that Jesus had to correct their adulterated interpretations of God's law by saying, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Paul is admonishing his readers to embody God's grace towards those who are against us or opposed to us. He is urging us to emulate the life of Christ, who prays for those who are crucifying him by asking the Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul urges this, for he well knows the level of amazing grace that was showered upon him and upon every single believer. In other words, we are urged to simply reflect what we ourselves have come to know. And by doing so, we are not only being obedient unto God, but we are also displaying to the world the new person that we are in Christ providing them with a flesh-and-blood example of what God desires to do with every person who trusts in Christ or turns to Christ in faith. And while the majority will not care and will continue to, to persecute us, the Spirit of God may well stir the hearts and minds of those upon whom God's grace has fallen and make an impression upon them that leads to inquiries and relationships that eventually lead to faith. 
Well, then Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Joy and elation, sorrow and sadness. Here are two extremes on the emotional spectrum that every person knows and understands. This is something that we do quite easily within the body of Christ, for we genuinely care about and for one another. We need no directive to do what comes quite naturally in the Spirit, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But what kind of a command is this that Paul is making to the church in terms of our interactions with those who do not yet know Christ? How is this admonishment meant to govern our behavior towards non-believers who celebrate things of which God does not approve. And they sorrow over things that may be the natural consequence of their sinful behavior. So the question is, is this a blanket directive that Paul is making here? Well, I don't believe we can take it that far, but what he is saying is that we must be sympathetic towards those who have not yet met the Savior and demonstrate that sympathy when it is appropriate. And likewise, to not be so cold towards those who are outside the church that we fail to relate to them in their times of joy. When a coworker has a family member going through a serious illness, do we exhibit sympathy in practical ways? Or do we give off an aura of emotional indifference? Likewise, when they may be celebrating the arrival of a new baby, Can we rejoice with them over this addition to their family? Or are we too withdrawn from the world to participate in any celebrations that might ensue? Paul is not suggesting here that we simply develop good manners. He's advocating for a genuine, heartfelt response, both in times of sorrow and in times of joy. But he's primarily thinking of the ordinary moments in life. He's thinking of the attitude that Jesus had towards the folks of his day. For when Jesus saw the crowds, we are told he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You will remember that when Jesus came to Bethany, when Lazarus died, we read there that Jesus wept, even though he knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why would he do that? Why would he weep? Because he could see the sorrow of Mary and Martha and his sympathies for them were such that he felt what they felt and so he wept with them. By the same token, when Levi hosted a feast for Jesus to which he invited a large number of his tax collector friends and other assorted sinners. Jesus did not decline the invitation because he was afraid of what it might do to his reputation. He went and he shared in the joy that Levi was experiencing over his being made new in Christ. So while this calls for wisdom... It primarily calls for a softening of our heart towards those who are outside of the family of God and finding genuine emotional connections with them such that we can truly rejoice with them in the times of joy and weep with them in their times of sorrow. 
Well, then Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight, he says. Now, here's an admonition designed to craft an overall personality that will rarely cause offense. We probably all know someone that is described as just simply rubbing people the wrong way. (laughs) They don't know how to harmonize with others because they see themselves as the star of the show. They never consider volunteering for any tasks or responsibilities that they judge to be beneath them. And if ever someone makes the mistake of asking a question in their presence, they have the answer. And if you disagree, they will cite their personal experience as the definitive authority on the matter. Paul is admonishing his readers to not be like that. He's saying that when we are engaging the world, we are to do so in all humility. He's encouraging us to shed any attitudes of pride or thoughts of personal greatness and reflect instead the humility of Christ. Even though Paul's significance to the church was great, what he said about himself was this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now that was not a false humility on Paul's part. That was how he saw himself as the chief of sinners. His persecution of the church was such that God's grace was magnified many times over. And this is the avenue we would be wise to follow in considering our place in the body of Christ. Consider your sin. Consider the myriad ways in which you have rebelled against God and resisted His Spirit and how much the Savior had to suffer to account for your sin. And then just when you have a grasp of that, multiply that. 10,000-fold, for there is so much that has escaped your memory as well as your initial consideration. It's only when we begin to realize the enormous height and depth and breadth of God's love and grace shown to us in Christ that we begin to lose any sense of pride and conceit And we begin to properly conduct ourselves with a humility born of the work of God's Spirit. That's the attitude we are to have when we interact with the unregenerate. And once again, we would be wise to consider the way in which Jesus presented himself to the masses. Remember the curiosity the Samaritan woman at the well had when Jesus, a Jewish man, asked for a drink. From her. He was uncharacteristically humble towards her. He did not behave as a typical Jewish man who would have shunned her from the very beginning. He elevated her by asking for a favor from her as well as a willingness to be made ceremoniously unclean by sharing a drinking vessel. Or remember the sinful woman who approached Jesus when he was at table with the Pharisee, and she washed Jesus' feet with her tears, dried them with her hair, and then anointed his feet with a fragrant oil. 
Whatever convinced her that as a shameful sinner, she would not be tossed out into the street where others thought she belonged? Was it not because Jesus was known to associate with the lowly? That he even described himself as being gentle and lowly in heart as he invited those who were weary and heavy laden to come to him? This is what gave her the courage to come. And while Jesus spoke with all authority, he did not elevate himself. He gave all the glory to the Father in heaven. He indicated that the words that he spoke were the words that the Father gave to him to speak. He says in John eight twenty eight, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. When Paul says, never be wise in your own sight, he is advocating that we recognize that there are limits to what any one person can know. We may be the born-again children of God, but that does not translate into omniscience or having the wisdom of Solomon. The truly wise person knows that he does not know all things and knows when to be silent and to listen, gaining knowledge and insight from others, even those who are not in the body of Christ. For there is nothing so annoying as the Christian who suffers with a superior attitude towards all others and looks for opportunities to tutor them. And then Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. You see, buried within our sinful flesh is a desire to return evil for evil. It is so strong that God told Moses that he was to tell the people that they needed to curb their desire for retaliation by limiting what they could do. This is where the notion of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth came from. God was not telling them that they had to exact retaliation. He was telling them that they could go no farther than this. The desire within the people was to double the cost. If someone destroyed another person's eye, the sinful response was to teach them a lesson they won't soon forget by exacting an even greater cost by putting out both of their eyes. Well, one can see that such doubling would not de-escalate the violence, but would actually increase it. And so limits were established. But Paul is now voicing a wisdom that Jesus offered to his disciples. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now here is a retaliatory doubling of the cost, but not against the perpetrator, but voluntarily by the victim. In this case, the disciples of Christ. Now this approach was so counterintuitive that the world had a difficult time comprehending these Christians who would not retaliate, but would offer 
themselves to further insult if necessary, all in an effort to put a stop to the cycle of violence. And this is what Paul means when he speaks of giving thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. He is saying that instead of giving in to the sinful tendency in us to retaliate and make the other pay for the harm they have caused us, consider a more honorable response that will put a final end to the matter by willingly absorbing the damage done and gaining favor in the sight of all. Now that does not mean that our gracious response will not be criticized by anyone. In the day and age in which we live, there is always someone sitting at a keyboard in their parents' basement with nothing better to do than to take pot shots at everyone and anything, all the while they, all the while they hide behind a wall of anonymity, bravely speaking truth to power in their minds. But the point here is to follow that course of action that you believe is in accord with the wisdom of God and will be widely seen by even the unregenerate as noble and an honorable thing to do in response to being injured by another. And then Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul recognizes that it isn't always possible to live at peace with everyone. For peace to exist, two parties have to resolve differences in ways that are mutually acceptable. But there will be times when one party is completely unreasonable and irrational and unwilling to compromise, which may require that we go that second mile and suffer for the sake of peace. But the point here is that it is incumbent upon us to make every effort to live peaceably with all. We should be the best neighbors anyone has ever had. We should be the best co-workers, the best team players, the best in-laws, the best bosses that others have ever had. Because our lives are to be governed by Christ's indwelling Spirit. And if we are operating under the mistaken notion that our spiritual gift is criticism, our utility in the hands of God will be limited. I have met Christians who believe they were doing God a great favor by getting into it with others at the drop of a hat. No one was impressed. Now, there are times when the issue that confronts us is so severe that we feel as though justice must be served because the incident demands it. We certainly know of Christians who have suffered the most horrible of events and the guilty party has suffered very little as a result. And for the victims, it has felt like a whole new violation. But Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And as violated as we may feel, we must allow the power of the Holy Spirit to control our response to that situation and realize that only God has the capacity to sort through all that is going on and to judge appropriately. I have little doubt that the relatives of Stephen were outraged and hurt beyond all consoling 
when those who were responsible for his death by stoning were walking the streets of Jerusalem like nothing had happened. And for those relatives to know that Saul of Tarsus, the A student of the great Jewish rabbi Gamaliel, stood in approval while all that was happening, had to have stuck in their craw for quite some time. But had they acted upon their outrage and feelings of justice denied and had murdered Saul in an act of vengeance? It would have changed the trajectory of the church. You see, we do not possess all the pieces to the puzzle that is being crafted by God alone. We don't know who God is in the process of wooing to himself or how he will bring that about. So Paul is saying, do not avenge yourselves. Leave that to God. Trust him to do that which is perfectly just and righteous and in his good time. Well then, What are we to do in situations where our flesh is demanding vengeance and our sense of justice is crying out for satisfaction? Paul responds to this by citing the wisdom of Solomon found in Proverbs 25. He says to the contrary, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Now once again, Paul's admonition is to act in a manner that is contrary to the ethics of the world, but in a manner that is consistent with that of our Savior. When Jesus was confronted with people in need, did he interview them first to determine if they were friend or foe? Of course not. When he fed the 5,000, did he suggest that only friends partake of the meal? Nope. When the Gadarene demoniac came charging at Jesus and the disciples, coming out of the tombs, rattling his chains, did Jesus refuse to deliver him, though he had obviously been living a notoriously sinful life to have gotten into the shape that he was in? Of course not. When there are those who have done evil to us, the opportunity may eventually present itself for us to do something good and kind in return. And when that opportunity presents itself, we are admonished to not return evil for evil, but to return good for evil. Now this quote from Proverbs has a very odd phrase in it that has puzzled commentators for some time. It says that, Our acts of kindness bring about a result that sounds rather punitive. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And there have been a variety of interpretations of this phrase with many suggesting that this is metaphorical language indicating that our acts of kindness offered to our enemies will have the effect of magnifying the shame felt by the perpetrator. Others have suggested that it is speaking about a future punishment of the offender so that our acts of kindness actually magnify the punishment they will experience. But given the whole tenor of this portion of Paul's letter, that seems to be out of phase. 
because he's been emphasizing how our actions and reactions to those outside of God's grace is actually intended to affect a change in the enemy, perhaps even to win them to Christ. This is why I believe that William Clausen offers the most convincing interpretation of what is meant by this. He has discovered that in ancient Egyptian literature there exists a custom where a penitent person would carry coals of fire in a bowl upon his head as a sign of the change in him. Klassen says in the Egyptian literature and in Proverbs, the coals of fire is a dynamic symbol of change of mind which takes place as a result of a deed of love. And if he be right, and I think he is, then what Solomon was saying and what Paul is saying here is that by acting contrary to our sinful nature, the possibility of transforming an enemy into a friend exists through acts of kindness and love. And while it may not have that result, we will, at the least, have done what is good and acceptable and perfect in the sight of God. And finally, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Given the fact that we as disciples of Christ will gain the ire of the non-believing world, we need to guard against being overcome by such evil and falling prey to it and succumbing to it. And in this case, the best defense is a good offense, meaning that we should always be looking for creative ways to communicate the love of God to those who do not yet know Christ. By acts of kindness, by living peaceably with those around us, by not retaliating in anger, but in ways that are honorable and pleasing to God. By rejoicing with others as well as sorrowing with them, In these ways, we are called to be Christians in this broken and fallen world. Let me invite you to join with me in a brief prayer this morning.